Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. A little shout out this morning to Nat Becker's mom for her rhubarb recipes. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Especially the clarification that one of these recipes uh, turns volcanic if you don't make some substitutions above 9,200 feet. So I, I appreciate this kind of specificity in recipe sharing. Uh, rhubarb is my favorite. I don't live in a place where rhubarb grows. So for those of you who have an affection, for me and for confections based on rhubarb, uh, we gotta we gotta figure out how to we gotta figure out a pipeline. That's it. That's all I have on that particular note. Um, okay, rising crime across the country. This is uh, undoubtedly the headline where you live, no matter where you live. Uh, and so the the numbers are pretty staggering. The spike in major U.S. cities, and we're going to use just the uh, shootings. As a uh, as as just one metric here. So in New York City, this is uh, this is a change over one year, June 2019 to June 2020. Shootings have spiked in New York City 166 percent in Chicago, 76 percent, which let's remember, Chicago is already um, just a, a horrendous um, gun violence, a city for gun violence. Atlanta, 124 percent. Now, again, that's a one year Increase one year percentage change from June 2019 to June 2020, 124 percent more shootings in Atlanta uh, than one year ago. Los Angeles up 33 percent. You can uh, you can research where your own city falls on this list. This reporting is um, is nationwide uh, and available in a number of places. I actually pulled it this morning off MSNBC. Rising crime across the country is uh, is something worthy of our attention um, because crime has a relationship to crime fighters. And uh, it's important that we recognize the relationship between the ways in which our police officers are being treated, maligned most often, um, because of the failure of a few among them to act in a way that, uh, to behave in a way that genuinely protected the rights of all or protects the rights of all, um, we have a real problem in our country. And so just yesterday, a protester assaulted a group of New York City police officers, NYPD cops, including the highest ranking uniformed member of the department. Uh, It happened in broad daylight. It happened during demonstrations on the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, And there is footage Uh, of the attack. Who is going to respond to this if the police aren't allowed to respond to people violently protesting? And so when you begin coupling uh, defunding the police with conversations about the ways in which our justice uh, needs to be meted out in a way that is indeed fair to all, you 
arrive at the place where you have lawless, at least pockets in cities. Maybe not entirely lawless cities, but you certainly have lawless places within cities. Uh, The mayor of Portland is still rejecting federal help after weeks of violence in that city. In Berkeley, California, the city council has set the goal of cutting the police budget by 50 percent, plans to replace all police officers with civilian workers uh, in everything related to traffic, traffic stops, traffic, traffic accidents. I mean, just let your imagination uh, work there for just a moment and then really consider whether or not you want to be in traffic in any way, shape or form uh, in in or around Berkeley, California. Like, right. So it's going to change the way we think about where we travel, where we work, how how we move about. Um, If indeed the risk in all of these cities is rising so rapidly with no plan uh, for how to curtail it. And why is that? Um, Because people are criminals. Like this is this is total depravity operating in lawlessness. And so for those of us who are Christians, we actually understand the storyline here. Um, People are not inherently good, um, and we don't have a divine spark. We are image bearers of the living God, fully corrupted, total, totally depraved in every part by sin. And so if you're not redeemed in Christ, uh, lawlessness is going to govern you. And only if you are governed by Christ with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, actively submitting moment by moment to the work of the Holy Spirit in you, cooperating with the Holy Spirit to um, bridle the tongue, uh, conform the mind to the mind of Christ, and then, yes, actually, like, bind us from doing what we are um, most prone to do, which is not only conceive of evil of ever greater forms in our minds, but then act it out. I, I got to tell you, that's who we are. And so um, I would be I would be a genius criminal were I not a Christian. I've confessed that uh, to you before, but there's no question that it's true. All right. Ben Johnson is, uh, and if you don't think the same is true of you, uh, spend some time thinking about who you would be in the fullness of your total depravity without Christ. Think about who you would be, um, because that is what we are now encountering culturally as the uh, living in the shadow of the shadow of the shadow of generations of faith in this country. All right, Ben Johnson is waiting in the wings right now. He and I are going to talk about a number of, uh, of headlines, these among them. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Okay. Uh, ben Johnson and I uh, have a number of things to talk about, but I have just learned that his uh, his wife is a rhubarb fan as well. And so I'm going to start off with an appeal for a recipe. You've got it. Uh, primarily, it's a uh, frozen section, but she does make her own fresh as well when she can get it. <sighs> I'm just my mouth is watering. All right. I'm going to need some rhubarb. OK, um, let's let's start where um, where I left off which is these efforts across the country to defund the police and um, not only just the, the natural outcome of that, but these these leaders in these cities who are actually condoning crime. And you're right. Not only is defunding the police part of the agenda, but then you always have the next ideological step. Uh, so, you know, Nancy Pelosi, when she was asked about these riots, she said people will do what they do. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
uh, said that uh, these were poor people simply looking for bread, but arson doesn't bring you bread. That's not how these things come about. Uh, but the idea of overlooking this kind of crime or justifying this kind of crime uh, actually has a long ideological pedigree uh, that people genuinely believe this is a kind of a form of speech. And, and on the other hand, they believe that speech they don't agree with is actually violence. You're seeing this strange juxtaposition of speech and violence taking place. So uh, there was a big debate about whether it was okay to punch Richard Spencer, the uh, racialist, uh, uh, unfortunate individual uh, who, who uh, runs uh, several right-wing, alt, alt-right uh, websites, very racist in his orientation, because he says things that they don't like. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you, you see this idea that it's okay to express yourself through violence. There were several op-eds in uh, the New York Times, USA Today, and other places saying that, um, it, it, in fact, it was wrong to call what was happening here violence because it only targeted property, allegedly. Matter of fact, the, the United Nations even sent out a tweet, which it later deleted, saying that it was concerned uh, about Antifa being described as domestic terrorists because it, quote, undermines the rights to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly. Peaceful assembly is not the problem. The problem is these sorts of riots, but you have what, what is purported to be the highest government in the world coming down on the side of people who are destroying things and, in some cases, killing uh, retired police chiefs. So there, there is this, this very directed movement to try and disregard other people to, to equate their speech with violence and violence with free speech. I want to talk with you um, about statue toppling. Um, you have a really, uh, really extraordinary piece. Um, I don't know if it's posted yet. I will check. It is going to be posted uh, at at the IRD, the Institute for Religion and Democracy. Um, talk, talk with us about the, the parallels you're, you're drawing, um, the threads that you're pulling out in this particular piece. Yeah, in um, the piece that's uh, either up or, or will be up shortly at the IRD, I go back to C.S. Lewis, uh, which is always a good choice whenever you have the opportunity. In his book, God in the Dock, he reproduces a letter that he wrote uh, to the editor back in the, uh, in the 1940s about the perils of national repentance. When we tear down statues, uh, quite often it's shrouded in this uh, sort of repentance language that we're repenting of our national sins. And that's nothing new. Lewis nailed it back in the 1940s when he said, if we're repenting of a sin we haven't committed, we're actually condemning other people. And that is the most inviting spiritual thing for people like us who are full of pride. It's a way of us comparing ourselves to others and saying we're better than them because of what we do versus what they do. Uh, he says, in fact, the greatest, the greatest uh, movement that we could do now would be to repent of the sins of our own generation, which include uh, several different—include a, a disrespect for our parents— and also include the sin of obloquy. That's a great C.S. Lewis word, obloquy, which means simply to rail against others in an abusive way. So that is the great sin that we need to repent of, not uh, simply toppling statues of people who were, like us, imperfect people in some ways, uh, some of whom are, are genuine scoundrels, but others like Abraham Lincoln and uh, U.S. Grant and others whose statues have been defaced, and of course, Jesus Christ, whose statue has now been defaced thanks to uh, a movement from Sean King uh, of Black Lives Matter, the greatest person who ever lived, the only perfect person to ever walk the face of the earth. Uh, to say that we're somehow better than he is should 
point us out, the real roots of this movement are demonic. All right, you and I are going to talk about the uh, this move toward churches, churches and religious statuary, uh, very likely being the next wave of targeted um, institutions and locations and um, iconography, probably. Uh, but I want to direct people both to your piece posted at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G, um, the Archbishop uh, California Church Singing Band, reminiscent of persecutions in the USSR. You can find that right now posted at Acton.org by the Reverend Ben Johnson, who is my guest right now. When we come back, we are going to talk about churches as the next target of Black Lives Matter protesters. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Saint Unipero Sarah, the statue of Saint Louis for. Catholic churches nationwide in a 48-hour period of time from July 10th to 12th torched. Focus on church institutions um, now seemingly the target of, uh, of those who are ostensibly protesting uh, in the wake of the death of George Floyd's uh, murder in Minneapolis. Ben, help us understand the phenomenon here. Um, and the move toward churches and church statuary and religious iconography. Well, unfortunately, the um, the message went out last month from Sean King, who is one of the national leaders of Black Lives Matter, very uh, well exposed in the media, uh, saying that we not only have to destroy statues of civic leaders, but we also have to destroy every statue and every image of Jesus that looks too white or European. He says that any statue or image of Jesus that looks uh, white is a form of white supremacy. And you know the fact of the matter is you've seen people who take this up immediately within 24 hours. Two different uh, statues were desecrated in two different parts of the world. One of them, by the way, was an image known as the Black Madonna of a very dark-skinned Jesus uh, that had BLM painted on top of it over in a city in the Netherlands where uh, it was erected because of their liberation from the Nazis. But you've seen this intensify over the last few weeks, uh, statues being beheaded, being torched, and you're going to see this continue in part because people don't understand the actual history of uh, iconography. Uh, the fact of the matter is in the oldest living Christian artwork tradition, uh, which is the Byzantine style, that's not how Jesus is depicted. He's not depicted primarily as white. In fact, the saints are usually depicted as gold. The idea is that the Holy Spirit's shining through us. Uh, as a matter of fact, the um, in my Bible reading this morning, before I was on the study, I happened to come across uh, Matthew thirteen forty three, talking about the heavenly kingdom after the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. It says, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And that's what the ancient Christian artwork tradition is trying to capture by using gold and generally keeping Middle Eastern Semitic features. Uh, the West eventually made this more realistic, more realistic in their context. But um, when it had the opportunity uh, later on after the age of exploration, it would often incorporate people of different racial backgrounds in order to show the reality, which the Christian church has always understood, that all people of all tribes, tongues, and nations will worship together at the throne of the Lamb. I have a listener um, who has texted in while you and I are talking. Um, 
April has a suspicion that um, this polarization politically related to allowing rioting to continue, allowing violence to spread, allowing some cities to be, you know, taken over, at least portions of them, actually just allowing um, the chaos to spread. Um, Her suspicion is that's politically motivated by those who are, you know, currently not in control of the executive branch, but desire to be. And if the roles were reversed, um, Democrats would be working much more diligently to subdue um, what is going on across the country. Talk with us about um, believing the narrative. Like if you've been saying for a long enough period of time that people are getting progressively better, then um, then how do you deal with real violence and real evil when it emerges in 2020? Yeah, the entire ideology behind this movement is uh, sort of an inversion of Christianity. The the Christian faith says that we're all sinners, we are in need of redemption through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit can come and live and transform us, and I must decrease that he can increase. Uh, the, The historical narrative behind progressivism is the idea that we, we used to be terrible, but on our own, through our own power, we have evolved uh, naturally, intellectually, to a better status than we have ever had before. And therefore, uh, what we do now is, is a reflection of that progress. Anything that contradicts that destroys to be, des- uh, deserves to be destroyed. As a matter of fact, there's a New York Times writer for the New York Times Magazine, New York Times best-selling author as well, Carvel Wallace, who elevated violence to a kind of a form of prayer. He said, a riot is not a tactical decision for political gain. It is a liturgy. It's a spiritual grasping for emotional justice. And so when you really believe the narrative that you're better than your forebears, that um, you know, we should disregard the fifth, uh, the fifth commandment to honor our father and mother, at that point... Uh, you begin to throw out everything that goes before and to justify the destruction of everything and the recreation of society in year zero. There's no doubt in my mind some politicians are using this for their own gain. If we were seeing mosques desecrated, we have a much different federal reaction from some some people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But when you have an ideology, everything uh, serves to reinforce that ideology. Uh, so this this idea that Um, uh, that speech is violence or silence is violence, but violence is just speech, has taken over. And so there's a political component, but the more concerning one to me is the spiritual aspect, the the disregard of the fact that we are sinners, and that should inscribe great humility into our hearts and the need for surrender and resignation and to fall down on our face before the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ben Johnson, um, as always, thank you so much. We're going to encourage people to check out the piece that will be posted today at the IRD. That's the word the and then IRD for Institute for Religion and Democracy. So the IRD dot O-R-G. But Ben's already got a piece posted at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Um, if you're not reading what Ben is writing, um, he has the ability to weave together history and theology and contemporary events in a way that will help you better understand what's actually happening um, in the world around us. And then, yes, bring your particular influence to bear through the freedoms that we enjoy here. So um, if you want to know what the next right ideological step is versus the next wrong ideological step down any thought path. Uh, Ben Johnson's a good guy to follow. He tweets as the rights writer. As always, sir, thank you so much. Thank you, and God bless. Likewise. We'll be right back. 
What kind of leadership is needed right now uh, in the uncharted territory in which we find ourselves in the midst of pandemic? What does adaptive leadership look like? What does transformational leadership look like? What do resilient leaders look like and how are they formed? That conversation up next with pastor and leadership professor at Fuller, Todd Bolsinger. We'll be right back. Okay, so if you listen every day, then you already know that there's a survey, uh, and it's posted at MyFaithRadio.com. It's a survey of listeners to the Mornings with Carmen program. And so if you're hearing this, it's a survey for you. We really would appreciate your either logging on to MyFaithRadio.com and clicking on the survey, which is over there on the right-hand side of the screen, or you could just text the word survey, S-U-R-V-E-Y, for those of you who are spelling challenged this morning. Uh, text the word survey to 877-933-2484. Uh, I got a great listener email this morning um, from somebody who filled out the survey and then actually heard one of the regular guests um, about whom he had given like negative commentary in the survey. And um, he came around to the idea that, you know what, I, I do disagree with this uh, particular guest um, on at least one thing, but um, but that's okay. It's okay. You don't have to agree with every guest on everything. The question is, are we provoking you to think more deeply, specifically more biblically, um, from a gospel worldview about the headlines of the day? Because that's actually what we're seeking to do here on the program. Uh, And so we go deep, we go wide, um, we go far afield, we go international, we go sports, we go all of the places that the news headlines go in order that Christians can walk their faith out into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. If we're helping you do that, we want to know how. If there are ways you think we could better be helping you do that, we want to know that as well. So go to the survey. Uh, You will find it at MyFaithRadio.com, or you can just text the word survey, S-U-R-V-E-Y, to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. If your teen is like the kids I know, she's an expert on this year's trends. She knows all about the latest fashions. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. The latest fashions for teens don't matter that much to you and me until they cross the line. I deal with parents all the time who worry about their daughter's outfits. These parents catalog every piece of clothing and assign strict rules about each one. But part of me just wants to give these girls some clarity. See, I hope you'll draw the line when it comes to modesty for your girl. But when it comes to the latest fashions... Don't micromanage. Allow for a little freedom of expression. Let your girl be the expert she desperately wants to be. Looking to make positive changes in your family? Check out the helpful resources from Mark Gregston online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Well, we're all challenged uh, to figure out 
how to lead in a time of pandemic. Todd Bolsinger has literally written the book on it, Leadership for a Time of Pandemic. He is the vice president and chief of leadership formation for the Dupree Center. You can find him at Dupree, D-E-P-R-E-E dot org backslash uncharted. Todd, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Nice to be with you, Carmen. Nice to be with you indeed. So you have taught us in the past how to uh, canoe the mountains, and now you are going to help us understand what is most required in leadership in these days. And so what is that? Well, the first thing to recognize is that the only thing constant about change is that it is speeding up. It is getting faster and faster all the time. And that um, my first part of my life was spoke spent time as a pastor, and we were grappling with the change from a Christendom to a post-Christendom world. That was a change that was happening over about 40 years um, after a 1,700-year period. Well, now most of us have experienced in about 40 minutes, we experienced the world mm. tra- transitioning because of the pandemic, and all of a sudden everything we know about life and church and organizations has radically changed right before our eyes. And uncharted territory is uncomfortable for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I describe it as like working in wet cement. Some of us mm-hmm. actually kind of like it, other people for other people it's really really uncomfortable talk about the new uncharted territory well the hardest part about this is there literally is nobody alive today who can give us any advice on what to expect tomorrow just think about that there's no expertise N- nobody can say oh yeah we've been through a global pandemic before in a situation just like this i mean there was one over 100 years ago right so what it means is uncharted territory means there's no maps there's no expertise in de- instead you have to learn as you go and you're going to be dealing with losses and vulnerability every step of the way and it requires a different kind of resilience for leaders than we're used to uh, having to go th- having to have all right, so you use the keyword there, um, resilience, and I want to return to that in just a moment. But you have now piqued everyone's interest in this, so let me tell them again. The book is Leadership for a Time of Pandemic, um, and we're going to send you to Dupree, D-E-P-R-E-E dot org, backslash Uncharted, for all of the things that Todd is posting um, in terms of resources there. And just thanks to our friends over at IVP for um, for producing this book. It's it's just excellent. So let's talk about resilience, because that's the kind of leader and the kind of leadership that's needed now. Yeah. So the, here's one of the most interesting parts is that the hardest challenges that most leaders face are not the external challenges. I mean, those are hard. It's hard that the world is changing. The most challenging thing for most leaders is the internal resistance that happens from your own people when you try to rally them to face the external changes, right? So that's where most people feel the challenge, especially if you're a nonprofit leader or an organizational leader or a company leader. It's trying to get everybody on the same page, all facing the same challenge together with the same esprit de corps. And it's it's when that starts to falter and people start to, to feel their way, kind of start to experience the breakdown of all of that, that really people get discouraged. And that's the hardest part for leaders. So when we talk about things being hard, like that seems to me like a good place for leaders um, to operate. But not everyone who has cultivated a particular expertise is excited about having to ad- adapt. Am, am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So think about this. If you are a person whose expertise has made you a, a trustworthy expert, 
Um, so you're a person who's really good at a particular business, or you're really good at, say, pastoring a congregation, or you're really good at um, uh, raising money. And all of a sudden, everything changes. Ad adaptation makes you feel as if you are not very good at those things anymore. Like it mm. feels vulnerable. It feels risky. And that spot of having to be a learner all over again is what most of us have been trying to overcome since, well, 10th grade math, right? And now we're having to face it every single day. So I feel like, see, Todd, I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's so exciting. Like we mm -hmm. have the opportunity to press into what being a disciple really looks like, a lifelong learner, what it looks like to, um, you know, learn to actually be the church in a new time. Um, you know, we were many, many mm -hmm. congregations have been struggling along, um, just sort of focused on survival. And now, you know, they're they're reaching people through digital that they never reached through analog. And, you know, now how do we make that sticky? How do we invite those people in? Are those the kinds of conversations that you're seeking to provoke people to have? Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. So the, the notion of being able to make that internal shift toward, hey, this is the greatest opportunity we have. We we can actually hit the reset button on our organizations. We can actually take legacy behaviors and legacy practices, some of which have long outlived their usefulness, and ask, you know, if this is a canoe and we've run out of water, can ha what would it be like for us to actually ditch the canoes and try to keep this journey going? And this is a good, great moment of it that is really exciting for lots of folks, but you got to realize that for a whole bunch of others, they're experiencing nothing but losses. They love those canoes. They love those legacy practices. They All they want to do is go back to what is familiar. I always say to people, remember, familiar is related to the root word of family. When people are on familiar terrain, they think they're home, even though that home may have been long gone or should have been abandoned a long time ago. All right. I am talking with Todd Bolsinger, uh, among other things. He is the vice president and chief of leadership formation at Fuller Theological Seminary. You can find him at Depree, D-E-P-R-E-E dot -E O-R-G. He blogs uh, at a site there called Uncharted. We're talking specifically today about his new book, Leadership for a Time of Pandemic. And we'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Todd Bolsinger, um, talking about not only his new book, Leadership for a Time of Pandemic, but also what church leaders are looking for and in need of these days and how Fuller is really stepping up to supply resources um, for you and your church today right now through the Fuller Leadership Platform. So all you have to do is Google those words, Fuller Leadership Platform, and you'll, uh, you'll find some resources there. Todd, what are they going to find when they Google Fuller Leadership Platform? Yeah, so one of the things we decided to do is to make all of our research and our resources directly available to the church um, and to leaders. We know there's a lot of people out there who come to Fuller to get our graduate degrees, but there's a number of folks who say, look, I don't need degrees, but I do need trusted scholarly research that's built out of the wisdom of practitioners and scholars. So we've made a bunch of material available, and through this COVID pandemic, we're making a bunch of them available for free until the 1st of July. Um, so we're just opening up the doors and saying, if this is can serve your church, if this can serve you as a leader, the Fuller Leadership Platform is the place where you can find those resources. Okay, there's such a fun stuff here as well. Um, I love the Fuller Studio stuff in addition to the mm -hmm. stuff that you've got available um, on the platform. So just, you know, pass along our gratitude um, to mm -hmm. those at Fuller who are making that happen. That's just awesome. 
Um, I think when when people think about the word leadership, um, they have something formed in their mind about what that looks like or or who that person is, what that person looks like. Can you help us break down some of those notions as well? Because I feel like there are people rising into leadership who don't look the part um, in the way that maybe I traditionally imagine a leader should look, um, particularly when it comes to Christian nonprofits or pastors. They're, you know, it just it looks different now than it has looked in the past. Yeah. So the most important thing to remember about leadership is that leadership is a skill. It's a f- mm. function. It's not a title. Uh, it's just because you get vice president or you get a corner office or you get heavy furniture. It doesn't make you a leader. <laughs> that that makes you a person who has a role. Leadership's a skill, and it's the skill is it's basically taking people where they need to go and taking them through the transformation they need to go through to get there. So leadership is always about the way that a people are transformed together to basically accomplish a shared mission. And that's why it is so profoundly difficult, right? The the challenge for Moses wasn't navigating the real estate of the wilderness. It was getting the people of God to become people who are ready to live in the freedom of the promised land. It's, that's what took 40 years. They weren't just wandering around because they were lost without a map. They were having to wander in the wilderness to be transformed. And that's the challenge of leadership today. So leaders today look different because they've got to be the kind of people who can hold a people together for their own transformation so that they can face a shared mission. And that's holding the people together is what's really hard. So let me ask this, Todd. Um, When we think about books, when we think about classes, when we think about church, we have Mm -hmm. ideas formed in our minds. Is part of what we have to get over or we have to overcome is is the mental images, those like fixed places in our own minds that need to be sort of unscrewed and reset. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just think about in the biblical story that Saul is chosen as as the leader of Israel. Why? Because he's taller than everybody else. He's more handsome than everybody else. He fits the part, right? So, um, but then typecasting, what we would think right. of as like typecasting. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. The whole point of the story of David is that literally the runt of the litter is the person who God has chosen, the one after God's own heart. And God has set that person in place to serve the people of Israel. Well, that story of David now, we look at David and we think of David as that chiseled granite, you know, piece of granite in Italy. But David was not the person who would have been chosen. He wasn't typecast. And so for us to go through the disruption of saying a leader is not somebody who just fits a part or a mental image. A leader is someone who has a particular trained skill set to take people through transformation and to be able to take on a shared mission together. Okay, I have an illustration from real life that you can now just adopt and use in this conversation. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, 10 weeks ago or something, um, we hatched some baby chicks and six of the nine eggs hatched. And so that was exciting. It's a pretty good hatch rate. But, you know, you never know if you're getting roosters or hens. But one of these little baby chicks was awful looking, small, I mean, really small, lacking feathers, seemed terribly unhealthy. Um, Nursed that little chick along. Everybody else in the group totally pecked, like, Kept kept that. I mean, it was isolated that chick. It was terrible. That chick, which we called Runt, is the rooster. Mm-hmm. Come to come to find out, you know, now now we know, right? The others are hens. 
And Runt is the rooster, and he's now bigger than everybody else, and he is clearly the chief in charge of that mm-hmm. group. And so I'm just saying that, like, sometimes the one that early on does not look the part ends up really, you know, being the leader. So I was using your word Runt there since that's what we call him. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, it's interesting because that's what I think what's happened during this pandemic is um, the churches that are— are being the most, I work mostly with churches, and the churches that are being the most creative are not necessarily the big mega churches. And they're not the weak, small little church that is just trying to cling to the past. It's anybody who steps up and says, I'm going to learn and we're going to face this together and we're going to learn as we go. And we're going to figure out how to keep fulfilling our mission to love God and love our neighbors. And that's nothing flat flashy, but it actually takes a tremendous amount of skill and formation. And so my work is really on the formation of leaders. I know. I just love that. And I love um, how much of it you guys are giving away at Fuller. Mm-hmm. So let me just introduce everybody again to Todd Bolsinger. You can find him online. You can find um, the book Leadership for a Time of Pandemic from InterVarsity Press. Uh, Todd is the Vice President and Chief of Leadership Formation, Associate Professor of Leadership Formation at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's the author of one of my favorite books, which is Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory. Um, He's also the author of It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian, uh, How the Community of God Transforms Lives, um, and another book called Showtime, Living, uh, Living Down Hypocrisy by Living Out the Faith. Um, We just love him here and are really appreciative of your ongoing ministry at Fuller. You guys can find Todd and what he's working on and the resources that he's making available to you free at Dupree, D-E-P-R-E-E dot org backslash uncharted. Todd, thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Okay, so you can um, communicate with me by texting me at 877-933-2484. I'm looking for rhubarb recipes today. What's your favorite rhubarb recipe? Uh, If it's too long to put in the text message, you can uh, send it to me via email, carmen at myfaithradio.com. Also appreciate if you would go fill out the survey uh, that is available at myfaithradio.com or by texting the word survey to 877-933-2484. We have a really exciting hour up next. Uh, Peter Kapsner will be back with me. And then I've got Rebecca St. James. She has dropped one new single, but tomorrow she drops a new EP, uh, a new uh, a new album. Um, and that will be uh, exciting because she hasn't released anything for nine years. So Rebecca St. James up next. Well, at the end of the next hour. This hour's over. We'll see you in the next hour. Okay, so we really weren't quite done with the hour, so I apologize. I'm back. And so we're going to talk for a minute and 10 seconds now before the end of the actual hour, um, before I get to conversations with Peter Kapsner and Rebecca St. James. I really have rhubarb on the mind. Um, Today is the 75th anniversary of the day um, that actually a lot of people feared that we were going to blow up the world. Um, And so... Um, it's a good day to be uh, to be thinking about nuclear power, um, nuclear responsibility. Today is the 70th, 75th anniversary of what's known as the Trinity Explosion, the world's first nuclear weapons test. Um, and certainly nuclear um, weapons are conversations that we still have today in relationship to countries like North Korea and Iran. 
It was about 1 a.m. on July the 16th, 1945, when Robert Oppenheimer uh, met with an Army lieutenant general uh, in a parched landscape in in New Mexico and detonated the first nuclear weapon. Um, And so it's worthy of uh, historical attention and conversation today. All right, we got another hour. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.